0: Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it's had on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Uh, A trigger warning for today's episode as it deals heavily with child abuse. My guest today, Christy Dickowitz, has been helping to keep vulnerable children safe for over 25 years. As the Executive Director of Snowflake Place, Christy is helping to lead the way by changing systems, challenging norms. And advocating for the rights and comforts of abused kids.
1: For anybody working within different structures or systems no matter what they are, um, I think they'd understand this is sort of our opportunity to take everything that's ever frustrated us about our jobs and what we haven't been able to do for kids within the structures that we've worked in. We have the opportunity to change that because we're a community-based organization that isn't, isn't as confined by sort of how business has always been done.
0: Christy was also the winner of the Winnipeg Foundation's Fast Pitch this year where 12 nonprofit organizations presented their stories in the hopes of winning the $10,000 grand prize. I sat down with Christy to talk about her experience at Fast Pitch, her incredible career helping children in their biggest time of need, and how we can have tough conversations with our kids that might just save their lives.
1: Because I believe in the resilience of children.
0: Christy Digwitz, Executive Director of Snowflake Place. Thank you for being on the podcast and thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about a lot of things today. I hope Um, you're kind of an expert in a very unique area Mm -hmm. um, and that was put on display at Fast Pitch. I kind of learned about your story and learned about the story of Snowflake Place through Fast Pitch. So let's talk about that experience first and then we'll talk about Snowflake Place in general. So you're about two weeks out of fast pitch. How was that experience now that it's in the rearview mirror and you can kind of look back on it fondly, hopefully?
1: Very fondly looking back on it, but it was it was a pretty crazy process. I mean, I think I've had the opportunity through my career to do lots of speaking in different capacities, um, but never quite like that. So, you know, I, I was um, really proud of how everybody did because it's not a natural thing to do to get up in such a sort of high pressure scenario, doing things from memory in a very timed fashion. But um it was pretty skill building.
0: The the you were comfortable in front of a microphone obviously but I think what's the most interesting part about it is being vulnerable Mm -hmm. in in front of a microphone. So talk about that process and were you comfortable immediately telling the story and saying what you wanted to do or or what was that like?
1: Well, I think the process was cool because by the time you get there, you're really comfortable with your pitch. You really like the the, the, um, story you're about to tell. Um, But you also have to deal with the fact that you are emotional. You're telling emotional stories. All 12 presenters felt very connected to their causes and the rest of us felt connected to their causes. So that's Sometimes that adds a lot of value when you're presenting, but you combine that with nerves, getting up on stage and doing things from memory and being phobic of blanking out and then running out of time. Um, you know, I think I think it's just a really good opportunity to to push yourself through those processes because, um, I mean, that's the only way you, you build on it.
0: I, talk, I asked Christy last week what was when she first kind of started the process how did that how did your pitch change from the start to the end or how did your story change or how did your understanding of yourself and and snowflake place evolve over this process
1: it was tricky cuz 3 minutes is fast you know at some at some points you think oh actually we have a lot of time here but you know to get up there and be able to um for all of us i think i could say for all of us to try to speak to organizations that do a lot of things and to be concise in a way that people Uh, will understand it. I'm a very wordy person. I think this was a good process for me. But at the same time, to be able to build a story in and build emotion in and be really clear about how um, important your ask is. um, I think I got a totally new appreciation for funders and how difficult that must be. And I mean, I've worked in the charitable space for over 12 12 years. um, And it was really, really eye opening on that front.
0: What did you do before this when you were in this world?
1: Well, I'm a social worker. So I've worked in child abuse. For 25 years, I've worked in child protection. I've worked at victim services, and I worked at another charitable organization that supports um, child exploitation and child abuse.
0: So you're aware of the the sphere of yeah, all yeah. Aspects but of when you sit in that,
1: when you sit in those organizations, we all think our cause is the most important one. Um, of course we do. That's why we do our work. And so I think that's what was a little bit eye opening for me is you know when you first um, you know sign up or, or um, Get chosen to be a part of this process. You look at the other eleven charities, and you see a name of a charity, and they might they, different ones mean different things to you in terms of just this name. Um, but when you start to hear their pitches, kind of come alive, um, you realize, and, and this, and this, I'm being totally honest, that how do. Funders pick. You know, when I put in a funding application over the last decade, I'm always thinking we should get this. We should get this money. We're deserving of this money. But then when you start looking at all the other organizations you didn't even know existed that need that money as much as you do to do great things, it was really, really helpful in that way.
0: So what did you walk away feeling? Because I, well, personally, when I see, it's one of my favorite events because I get to learn about all these things, and then you, you just see it's it's impossible to not be inspired when you see 12 people who are devoting their lives Mm -hmm. to X cause. Mm-hmm. And it's so important, mm-hmm. you know, even things I wouldn't even think of like brain injuries or whatever mm-hmm. it would be like, oh my God, that's so important. We need yeah. to, we need to get behind this. So how how did that affect you?
1: Well, I think it's, it's, it's awesome for so many reasons. I work in a space where I see a lot of harm that people can do. And um, being in an environment where you get to see, you know, I know this already is why I'm still a positive person. I'm not a depressed person is because you know that most people are actually pretty awesome. And most people want to help and most people want to uh, make a difference. So that's a nice refreshing thing. But I also think what surprised me a bit was how many of us now really need to connect with each other. Because, you know, I mean, I deal with children, I deal with children of from all walks of life, with all different levels of ability, from all different socioeconomic status and cultures. And so for all those organizations that touch on those issues, there's no doubt in my mind that a good majority of us will stay connected for those reasons.
0: And then you can strengthen each other and sort of a rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah, without question. Yeah, for sure. So your pitch was one of the most, one of the more emotional ones, one of the more kind of like, you know, Mm -hmm. you get a little Mm -hmm. lump in your throat. Was that intentional? Did you know you had to go there? Were your Mm -hmm. coaches sort of helping you figure that out?
1: Yeah, carefully. And I think that was kind of a neat process too, because I, you know, two different coaches, two different sets of strength, and we had really good debates about it because, and both of them um, really fed into what the end product was, but we were educating each other as we went along. The one part that I know that's very sensitive about what, the work that we do and the work that I do is you can only go so far because it is a dark topic. It is a difficult topic. So without question, we want people to feel emotion. Um, That's not really difficult when it comes to the issue of child abuse, child sexual abuse, all of those issues. But if you go too far, People just want to shut it out and look away and it's too uncomfortable. So finding that balance is really important of being striking and not sugarcoating things, but not making people look away. And also one of the concerns I had is looking out into the crowd, you know, many, many people in that room are impacted by these issues. So, you know, causing people to feel uncomfortable or triggered or doing those sorts of things is something else that we have to think about when we're doing it.
0: Well, the numbers in your pitch were something that I, it's its a jaw dropping moment. Can you mm-hmm. just tell me a little bit about who who's all affected and then that's not even including unreported cases, right? Well, right.
1: And that's one of the comments that, that I make and I've made many, many times is we know in this space that most child abuse does go unreported. Um, and there's so many reasons for that. I mean, it thrives in secrecy, that's, it, it's uncomfortable, um, children are vulnerable um, when children are being harmed by adults in their life, and that's usually the case. Um, there's just a million layers that cause it uh, to be difficult for those things to come to life, or to come to light. Um, the ones that do, we were estimating that there's about 4,500 investigations in our province each year, that's between Child and Family Services investigations and police investigations. Um, So yeah, the numbers are staggering and again, we can't really hide from it and it's a hard thing to educate the public about because most people think it can't happen to them. It can't happen within their families um, and sadly that's not the case but we don't want to be scary about it either. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just need people to really understand that.
0: You need to be real, realistic as opposed Mm -hmm. to, you don't need to be pessimistic or optimistic, just be realistic about this, right? Um, Yeah, like those, I was like, was that Canada wide, Mm 4,500? But it's Manitoba only. Yeah. Maybe let's back up a second and just give people context about what Snowflake Place aims to do and, and what role you're playing within the child abuse um, universe.
1: Yeah. So Snowflake Place is. Manitoba is Child Advocacy Center. Child Advocacy Centers exist across North America. uh, And what the Child Advocacy Center movement, if you will, um, was trying to accomplish over the last few decades, starting in the US actually, is really trying to integrate services that respond to child abuse. We have police, different systems come to play when there's a child abuse investigation or concern. So it's really trying to make it a child-centered approach. What we have in Manitoba is a really good start if I'm being totally honest. So Snowflake Place, we're sort of a central interviewing model where um, we have a small office. It is very child friendly. And when there's a child abuse investigation, rather than children being taken to a police headquarters or a police station, police can bring them to us. And we have two uh, forensic interviewers on site. All they do is interview children and they're enormously enormously skilled at that. Um, So children come to us, Um, And it's a better environment, and uh, we have highly trained interviewers to to try to get the information and help them tell the story of what's happened to them. Um, At this point, very much being used in a criminal proceeding, a criminal process. Uh, But it's also an environment where the other stakeholders involved can can sort of wrap around a child. So victim services um, tries to be on site when there's an interview happening. Uh, Child and family services tries to be on site when there's an interview happening. In other integrated models, everybody lives together in one space, and ideally that's the direction you want to end up.
0: More of a holistic approach, mm-hmm. full circle. Everything's being focused on. So ha- is that a new model? Like t- t- you've been in this space for mm-hmm. a couple decades. Yeah. How has it evolved? What did it things used to be like? You, like you mentioned child centric. Did it not used to be that? It or... still
1: isn't, if I'm being honest. Okay, it still like isn't fully? very child centered. I think what we have, and I want to make it really clear, we have amazing people working in this space. People who go into law enforcement and decide to be child abuse investigators are pretty solid people <laughs> who care about kids. You know, same with CFS. And we hear horror stories. There's, you know, bad bad stories in every profession. But the folks that go that, that dedicate their careers to be a doctor that specializes in child abuse or any such thing. They're pretty solid people, but we're all working separately. We're all working individually. So what ends up happening is as much as we all want to put a child's best interest first, really we're meeting the mandates of our agency. So when there's a child abuse investigation, we're going out and talking to a child and really trying to get from the child what we need to accomplish our goals. And over time, what we aim to do and what Child Advocacy Center models aim to do is really put the child at the center of it. So all of these systems and services that we have to offer are really using everything that we have to assist that child mm-hmm. instead of instead
0: of the other way around. Right, cuz there there would be so many organizations that each have their own mandate or their own plans or what mm-hmm. they need. And mm-hmm. it's, and yes, the child is considered, but maybe the systems weren't set up to fully, that's first. That's and right. then you worry about the other That's things. right.
1: And, and, and I think it's intuitive to people too. When we all work separately, it just isn't very efficient. We're not sharing information the way we could. There's challenges to that. And it's not that it's a lack of will. It's that when we work in different buildings across town, it's really hard for us to be on the same page about who's doing what. And the other thing I think there's a huge opportunity for us with going forward is, is providing some leadership. And I don't mean being the bosses of people I mean some leadership in terms of making sure what the child needs they're getting all the systems are trying to insert something to make sure that's happening but there isn't sort of this um Nobody has the ultimate responsibility to make sure a child or their family is getting what they
0: need. Are you hoping Snowflake Place becomes that sort of overarching? Without question, yeah, yeah, without question, sure. we need that. What what still needs to happen for you to be that uh, group?
1: We're on our way, yeah. but there's a lot of work ahead. There's a lot of work ahead. Um, but the good news right now, I can say, is that um, all of the systems, all of the government agencies, all of the the partners that we would need to get this done are totally on side. So we're we're be- in the beginning stages of making something happen, um, but we're hoping to move pretty quickly and be able to talk a lot more about that in the coming months
0: well we're just learning about kind of what needs to happen in an all-encompassing way right before Mm -hmm. it was kind of just like oh you don't worry about that we just got to get the confession that's the most important thing and now we're starting to sort of look towards a, a full picture yeah um did you were you the founder of snowflake place no No? it was
1: set up about uh six years ago actually and how
0: did you get what was the impetus for you getting involved
1: well they posted a position for an executive director it was it's exactly i mean it's it's in my world in the world that i live in it's my dream job because you know what i've worked in this space for a long time i've worked in child and family services doing abuse investigations alongside police i've worked at victim services i've worked in the nonprofit world in child protection at a great organization learned a ton there about uh, what needs to happen and had the opportunity there to work with other child advocacy centers so um, when that position was posted I I jumped at it it's a great organization we have great people working there um, but I also know the opportunity and so for anybody working within different structures or systems no matter what they are um, I think they'd understand this is sort of our opportunity to take everything that's ever frustrated us about our jobs and what we haven't been able to do for kids within the structures that we've worked in, we have the opportunity to change that because we're a community-based organization that isn't 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 as confined by sort of how business has always been done. So it's pretty exciting.
0: You've been doing this for a long time. Have you, and I think our, our collective um, understanding of the effect of secondary trauma or mental health issues, mm-hmm. have you had to make a conscious effort to either decompartmentalize or, or debrief with people or like what's that process like I think you? I've
1: always had the opportunity to work with great people mm. and, the, and and great people we talk to each other I've never really struggled with it and I think part of that is um I've always been able to maintain sort of a very positive, hopeful attitude. And I think I spoke to that a little bit in my pitch too. It's like um, the reason I can love this work and feel good about this work is because kids are super awesome. And, uh, you know, yeah, I've seen probably some of the worst things a person could imagine happen to a child, but I know firsthand that they can be okay, you know, the resilience is absolutely astounding, which is why I feel completely motivated at this point in my career to make sure that our primary investment is in allowing them to recover from just about anything um so changing sort of that sort of focus on let's invest in what we need to do with all of the other things being equal like being important as well in the background um let's invest in that because I I I can't believe some of the things that some of the amazing people I've had the opportunity to work with have recovered from and living wonderful lives and contributing lives and um it's just it's it that's
0: the part that's awesome so that drives you and kind of Contains the potential for getting depressed and and having any sort of yeah I think part difficulty. of it and, and
1: we're all different people and we all have to kind of manage that and and as a per- as a person that has staff we have to manage that with our staff to make sure everybody is okay because it is tough stuff but um, but I think for me it's just knowing that we can make a difference and I think it would be harder for me because I think I've just been drawn to this issue for whatever reason for a really long time. And I think it'd be harder just to be a bystander watching it because I'd be reading about it in the news because I always do when I see something happen, whether it's in Canada or somewhere else. You know, you'd be reading about it, but being in a position particularly now where, you know, I can get angry and frustrated that things should be done differently or we should be doing more, um, but I don't feel hopeless or... um, You know, I I always feel like let's let's get on top of this. We're gonna, of course, we need to start preventing this stuff better, and there's great work being done on that front. But we also know the reality is these types of crimes against children are going to continue to happen. So let's just keep doing more and more and more, so we're better prepared to support.
0: I'm reminded of the Spider-Man quote: "With great power comes great responsibility." (laughs) Like you have all this knowledge, experience, and and understanding of the situation, so you, it's almost like it would be. Yeah, you have to, to not but to you not. have
1: to. But I like what you just said because it's also that, also comes from adults. Adults have great power. And mm. so, you know, at some point in the coming months, in the coming year, we're going to be calling on Manitobans to step up because I think the good news is most people really care about kids. And so, as adults, we all have that power and we all have that responsibility to kids. And so, part of what we hope to do over time is really change the way. Adults, healthy adults in our community can support this issue because I think as much as we've said it in the past, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and all those wonderful things that we say, when it comes to child abuse, it falls on the police, it falls on child protection um, and really what are average people are supposed to do. So we're really hoping to change that because we think our community is in a better spot to be able to influence the wellness of the community and assist our partners in policing and child protection in doing their work as well.
0: Yeah, it... It seems as though for whatever reason, there's been a stigma about talking about it, mm-hmm. about shining a light on these things, right? Mm-hmm. So how can we help families uh, protect themselves and protect their kids like what have you learned about that side of the of the experience yeah
1: i think continuing to build awareness that it happens Mm -hmm. because if we think like we don't want people to be running around phobic that this is going to happen to me or this is going to happen to my kids we want kids to have childhood to be happy and safe and all of that but we also can't be naive to think it couldn't happen because if you think it couldn't happen i think you're vulnerable so there's a delicate line between being like it could happen to anyone and being dark about that as opposed to it could happen to anyone so let's take some steps to look out for each other and each other's kids and our own and make decisions that make us really feel comfortable um, and teach our kids to make decisions that um, when they're feeling uncomfortable um, and that we'll listen to them and all those things. But I also think as we improve our response to this issue over time, um, as we Involve the community in our response to this issue over time. I hope that that will have an impact on people's willingness to step forward. You know, I think it would be really daunting to be worried that something might happen to your might have happened to your child, or something might have happened to you if you're a young person. And who do I tell this big story to? So I think if we can um, break that down a little bit and make it a little friendlier in terms of how we do that, I think I just think there's so much we can do.
0: As I'm not a parent, but Mm -hmm. as a potential parent, you don't want to be the one that ruins your kid's innocence Mm -hmm. and being like, guess what could happen to you Mm -hmm. someday. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a delicate conversation, but it's an important conversation to have just to say like, if anything was to ever happen to you or Mm -hmm. you feel uncomfortable or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. this is not acceptable. You Mm -hmm. are, you know, you have control of your body, get out of there, whatever the situation is. So what are some tips for parents that could have these difficult conversations with their kids?
1: Yeah. I'd say to have them regularly, Mm. you know, I think, um, I think having them on a regular basis so it's not a big scary conversation and it doesn't have to be about if this happens do this but it's about building their comfort and um, getting out of situations that make them uncomfortable it's like giving them the power we've taught kids too that they should respect adults at all times so kind of balancing that because we absolutely want them to respect their teachers and those and those sorts of things but um, just with regularity kind of giving them little scenarios in terms of what they would do in this situation and when they should tell their mom if they're uncomfortable and all those kinds of things. Um, I think what tends to happen is, you know, we turn on the news and we see a bad story and then we talk to our children about it because it's reminded us or prompted us. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do have children and I'm, I can tell you with certainty, they don't do anything the first time I tell them ever. <laughs> so wh- why would we expect them to retain that information yeah, in a really have, uncomfortable situation? Have you one know? conversation, yeah. be like, hey, done, they're, now yeah. they're safe.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's tough. <laughs> um, when When these situations, I don't want to, I don't want to make it into a gendered thing, but I feel like a lot Mm -hmm. of times young girls, especially are encouraged just, okay, no, honey, just be quiet. Mm -hmm. Just, it's okay. Just Mm -hmm. calm down and be polite. And and that can be misconstrued for if someone makes you uncomfortable, you don't Mm -hmm. have to be polite to them Mm -hmm. anymore. Right. So like, it's, it's such a fine line to walk. It is. How have you. Is there any resources for people out there? Oh, like, what, what do you what do? You I think do? one of
1: the best resources we have in this country is here in Winnipeg. And we have the Canadian Center for Child Protection, where I happened to work before. Mm-hmm. Um, they put out the best educational resources for parents on prevention, on ways to talk to your kids in a developmentally appropriate way. Because how you talk to a five-year-old isn't... isn't the same as how you talk to your 15 year old but the conversations are equally important and you know being able to talk to your kids in an age appropriate way from the time that they're young and all the way through and carrying that up it just builds their confidence we don't want scared kids we want confident kids we want kids that feel like they can go into the world and navigate whatever situations life throws at them so I would encourage anybody to go to the protectchildren.ca website just to get free resources from the center Um, by far that's the best resource
0: protectchildren.ca yeah Great. Um, I think part of it, too, is I remember my mom talking to me about things. And I'd be like, roll my eyes, like, mm-hmm. mom, I know, you know, like whatever it is, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, being safe, safe sex or anything yeah. where it's those are those awkward conversations. But in retrospect, now that I'm an adult, I'm like, thank goodness yeah. for that woman and they
1: might roll your their eyes at you but in the moment that they experience that thing that makes them uncomfortable they are be like oh that my mom told me about that or my dad told me about that um and so it's that sort of that was practice situations where they get into them you know i, I i've often compared it to you know you're in a I've got teenagers. You go to a party and bad things are happening at that party and you're worried about somebody. We walk through scenarios like that because, again, you know, we all tend to focus on our own child and if something was happening to them, but also to help educate them on how to be a good peer. You know, I tell my son, like, you know, send me a text. I'll help figure out how to solve that problem without embarrassing the heck out of you in front of all your friends. But, you know, um, giving them scenarios to walk through. But what would you do if this happened? Or what would you do if that happened? Um, If you're at the park, and you're with your friends and you're supposed to be walking home with your friends, but they take off on you and now you're at the park by yourself. Then what? Like just just navigating different situations so it's not about some big scary incident, but just building their confidence the way you would with anything else.
0: Allowing them to know that whatever decision they make, they're gonna be supported and yeah. taking, you know, a lot of times I think mm-hmm. some of the fears stem from I'm gonna get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Especially with young kids, you know, mm-hmm. like something bad happened to me, it made me feel bad. If I tell on them I'm going to get in trouble or especially if it's someone in a position of power Mm -hmm. that is, uh, you know, abusing that power. And
1: telling them that you're going to get in trouble.
0: Right. Right.
1: So I think, you know, getting ahead of that kind of a concern Hmm. where you're like you would never be in trouble. There is never a situation where an adult you know, takes it, shows sexual interest in a child or hurts a child where the child's to blame. Never. So for them to know that too. And when they're older, the conversations can be different because when they're older, our kids are aware of everything that happens in the news. So to use those examples to say, you know, um, there is absolutely no way that child's to blame for that behavior it's always the adults fault <laughs>
0: it's hard to yeah, well the, it, because there's a, a you you say like don't worry if a teacher or anything you know if anyone an adult ever makes you feel uncomfortable it's never your fault but then at the same time you also have to listen and be respectful and yeah. and listen to what they say so like mm-hmm. it's a hard it's a difficult conversation to navigate but Mm -hmm. so important to have it yeah does it just get easier as you kind of have them you know like it's going to be clunky at first
1: because this is we're really focusing on all of it right now at once because it doesn't have to happen all at once Mm -hmm. it can happen in really subtle ways i use one example that's actually um for myself when i first um started working at the canadian center and i was learning a little bit more about some of the um just boundary breaking behaviors that happen when abuse happens and my kids were really little then, and we have tons of friends. And you know, I, my daughter was maybe four, and my husband's friends, our our shared friends, would be over, and she's like the most social person you've ever met in your life. It has been since she was little, and she'd say, "Well, I want so and so to read me a book before bed," and I sit in the kitchen and trust the person completely, and he's in there reading this book, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, I, I have I have no concern that he's you know a risk to my child, but what am I showing her?" That he's in her room reading her a book and I'm not there so there's just even some subtle things and in practice you know they talk about that with teachers you know the if, if you're a teacher and you're sitting with a child and you close the door um, because you just you're good you're not going to do anything they're good you're just gonna you're gonna work through whatever it is you're working through you're teaching them that it's okay for a teacher to close the door and do like so we can model those types of things you know my husband's coached his whole career he wouldn't drive one child home not without me there, not without our daughter there. It's just not because he's concerned about a kid making an allegation against him, less so that, more so he wants the student to know that that wouldn't be an okay dynamic, right? There's just certain things we put in place not to be phobic and scary, but just to create some protections and boundaries and things that kids should feel are their right.
0: That that feels like next level kind of awareness of what the what the the lessons that you're teaching never mind the conscious conversations it's just like here's what's appropriate here's what isn't
1: yeah and and we as parents we have to respect privacy like I have to challenge myself when my kids were younger where all of a sudden they want to I can't just walk into the bathroom when they're little because they're like no I'm having privacy it's like oh yeah you're right like it is okay for you to have those things and You know, so we have to be respectful of those things, too.
0: That's one thing my generation, or at least I can't speak for my whole generation, Mm -hmm. but I mean, that's one thing that I've been struggling with is creating boundaries, Mm -hmm. whether it's professionally, personally, socially. So how can parents have those conversations when you're the one that should be creating, you know, like yeah. you're the boundary maker yeah. and then you're like, actually, you can set your own boundaries. Yeah. Like,
1: Well, I think that's exactly the point is building that in as well. It's just over time, letting them set their own boundaries, letting them speak their minds when they need to and setting the example that they can say when they're uncomfortable with something.
0: Has there been a time as a parent where there has been a request for a boundary from your kid and you're like, that's a little much like or, you know what i mean yeah. or, or do you always say like you know you'd want to nurture that um out of them or into them uh, but. Depends what
1: you're tra- if, if she's going somewhere or they're going somewhere i want to know where that is yeah. they might think i don't need to know but i mean there's always those boundaries it's just being conscious of it and, and we're never perfect we're always gonna make mistakes but that's why i say it's not a one-time conversation it's not a one-time lesson it's just sort of being aware of it all the time and if you think about all the things you teach your kids it's like build that in just build that into part of your part of your day when they're going into a new situation i mean when they're little you do it if you're going into mall of america or something you create rules if we get separated this is what happens those are things so why wouldn't we create those scenarios for when they're going for a sleepover or if they're going on a school trip or if they're going to camp or you know walk them through some scenarios where if you're feeling comfortable what are you going to do who are you going to tell who's your person that you can talk to while you're there um, who's how can you get a hold of me? Like all of those things. Um, it's just it's just considering it with some regularity. Create, and you'll feel a lot better about it. It's not gonna make you feel worse.
0: It cre- shouldn't. Yeah, creating hypothetical situations and seeing how they respond and then being, like, yeah. well, what if you tried this? You yeah. know, like and yeah. allowing them to come to their own conclusions, yeah. I think is pretty important yeah. too, and learn their own lessons as opposed to you can't do this, you yeah. have to do this, always do this. Yeah. Right? That's a, a different kind of approach. Yeah. For for parents who would or new parents or anyone, what are some warning signs or something like how can parents, uh, if something, God forbid, would ever happen, mm-hmm. what, what are some of the warning signs? What are some of the best practices of like how to approach a situation like that if, if your kid is potentially in, in danger?
1: Well, I think there isn't sort of a cookie cutter and that's mm-hmm. the thing. So I think watching and, and being conscious of changes in behavior in your kids is really important um, and trying to get to the bottom of those. I think it's a concern that I have mm-hmm. You know, over time. I think about if you want to, again, looking at genders, we try not to do that, right? But um, you know, you look at you know a teenage boy who all of a sudden is doing poorly in school and is having different attitudes towards his parents and 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 um, isn't sleeping well. And I worry still that we haven't got to a place that abuse and, and different things that could be happening to the child become a, one of the factors we look for or we screen for. Like I worry about that. I think some people get it. I think more likely you take a teenager to a doctor or to, to someone and say these are the things they're having and they'll think you know, different sort of learning issues or depression and things that we should be screening for that we've learned to screen for. Um, But I think to your point, it's just considering that those are some of the possibilities. You know, if you have a child that does not want to see a certain person, that person makes them uncomfortable. um, You know, that's definitely not something you want to scold them about. You know, they don't want this particular babysitter to come or they want to go to their room when a certain family member is coming over. Like there's things to watch for in those ways and just try to be mindful that these things, are possible. Like again, I try not to be the doom and gloom sort of, you know, suspicious of everybody. It doesn't. It doesn't feel that way for me. It's just for me. I know that things are possible. So. Um, making sure it's part of the consideration, you know, if there's some relationships that are making people uncomfortable. And again, I, I mean, I bring it back to the Canadian Centre and the and the resources they have. Their programs are being taught in schools for the most part mm-hmm. across Manitoba through Kids in the Know. Um, so mirroring some of the lessons that are being taught to your kids at school can be really helpful. And identifying people other than yourself mm-hmm. that your child might talk to if they're uncomfortable. So, you know, I'm, I'm I'm very nosy and I'm very involved with my kids. So I, of course, want them to come to me with any question they have. But it's really important to, to help them identify other people that they could talk to, especially as they get older. Even if it's about, you know, teenage issues that seem really big, um, you know, they might want to talk to, you know, a younger family friend or um, somebody other than myself. Um, and you certainly want them to be able to think through as part of their safety strategies, who are the people in my life that I'd be really comfortable talking to about anything?
0: Yeah, that's the whole village, you know, yeah. like you create an, uh, if you, if you have the privilege of having friends and family members that you would trust with yeah. that situation, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like some people probably don't. So that's a tough. Well, you hear of
1: a lot of kids who either confide in a peer or confide in a peer's parent. And I think that's awesome. You mm-hmm. know, I think it's really good as long as we kind of keep that village and make sure we're connecting and, and getting information back to who needs to, to be helpful.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So at the end of our time together, yeah, I ask the same seven questions to everyone. Okay, um, we'll see what we come up with. It's okay. usually pretty fun, but down. Good. All right. Question one: uh, What's the very first cause you actually remember caring about?
1: Well, I can't lie; it's this one. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I remember in in high school. I don't know what I did before that, but I remember <laughs> high school. I did projects on child abuse. I don't wow. know why. Well. I shouldn't say that. I mean, I come from a family that's a little um, interesting. My dad was the director of a children's aid society. I remember doing a little fundraiser, being dragged along to fundraisers for him um, when he was doing fundraisers for child welfare. So I think it's something that I saw in that way. But I've always been like a people person. I think there was a time where I thought I was going to go into, I knew I was going to social work. I thought I was gonna work with seniors, I think, Mm because I really like, I really liked that as a kid too, but definitely knew I was always gonna work with people. But I've always been drawn to supporting kids and That sort of thing.
0: seems. sounds like the vulnerable, you know, people who are more susceptible to any sort of problems. Yeah. Question two, uh, if money, politics, and logistics were no issue for you at all, what's the first thing you would do in support of Snowflake Place or in support of, you know, child abuse?
1: Well, it's it's what we're working towards now, but it might take us a bit longer because of those things that you just mentioned. So, I mean, building the type of wraparound response for child abuse and shifting shifting, um, what our priority is so that we we can say with confidence that we're responding to child abuse in a way that gives every child and family the ability to recover uh, fully from whatever they've experienced. So um, I think regardless of all those things that you mentioned, we're going to do it. We're going to get it done. Um, But it's going to take a little bit of time because we're talking about a lot of systems that have done things a certain way for a long time. Um, But like I said, you're going to hear more about that in the coming months. Um, But if I could get rid of those issues, we'd have it done in (laughs) well, and
0: it's it's about a cultural shift too, right? Because we have to change the way we socialize ourselves even, right? Because Mm -hmm. there's so many situations and institutions that take advantage of keeping up appearances mm-hmm. and not rocking the boat and making sure everyone's comfortable mm-hmm. and happy. And like, you don't want to say anything that could disparage someone. Right. 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 And now we need to like abolish that line of thinking. Right. And just focus on the safety and the well-being of That's our right. Kids first. And,
1: and it is, you make a really good point because the systems are doing all they can and they're great. They're doing great stuff. And this is everything that we're talking about is just going to make all those things stronger because the, the, the challenges to, um, being as successful as we could be in child abuse really aren't anybody's fault right now. You can't really point a finger. Sometimes you can. In very rare cases, we all know that, but Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you can. But for the most part, it's not anybody's fault. It's just that we're structured a little bit wrong and we're going to fix that.
0: Has the cultural shift happened? or do you think we're in the middle of it or do we still need to no we're in the middle it. of it yeah, we're yeah, in the middle of it. Yeah. but
1: I think I think we have a really good climate for it. I think we have a really we have really great people who um, it's not hard to shift. It'll take some time, but it's not difficult because um, we've got a lot of good things to work with in this province,
0: yeah. and I, I think, People in general, society in general, starting to understand power dynamics and Mm -hmm. power structures Mm -hmm. and how people have long taken advantage of them for personal gain and for and for abusive reasons Mm -hmm. or for whatever it is. So I think that's a big component of Mm -hmm. this is just understanding. Oh, wait a minute. You should, you know, you talked about driving home. That's not driving a kid home. Mm -hmm. That is not bad on the surface, but it's what it says mm-hmm. quietly Absolutely. Right? Yeah, about yeah. How, how we've been set up for so long. Yeah, yeah. Question three, what is the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about your cause?
1: I There's a few that I'd like to, I think I would speak to. One, um, that it is uncommon. Mm. Um, sadly, it is extraordinarily common. It scares me um, how much might be going on for kids that we never hear about. We often don't hear about it till adulthood, if at all. Um, And we want to change that. So that's a big piece of it. Um, It doesn't happen within one culture or socioeconomic status. This is something that absolutely does not discriminate. Uh, So it can be happening anywhere. Um, That sounds really scary. I didn't mean to sound scary, but it really does happen in all communities and cultures and backgrounds. Um, And that's across the planet. Um, The other thing is... um, I think there's a bit of a stigma that, that really is harmful in having people come forward. And that is that these kids or these people that experience things like this are broken or Mm -hmm. damaged. And that is absolutely not the case. These are experiences that, um, that nobody should ever have. Um, but as we talked about earlier, the resiliency of young people is phenomenal. And, um, and I've seen people overcome some of the worst things imaginable and they become amazing advocates and strong and strong, strong men and women. So, um, we need people to understand that 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 it's totally cool um not cool it's but to step forward right and and it's not because you have to accomplish something through the criminal justice system it's just that um it's totally something you can overcome and be in your
0: past it seems like part of the brokenness stigma mm-hmm. is the fact that it's been hush hush and as soon as you shine a light on it and mm-hmm. you speak it out loud and you and you talk about it mm-hmm. and you you know get it out there mm-hmm. that's the step one to healing so then the broken the brokenness only comes from pushing it down and- yeah and,
1: and and we don't want to put pressure on on um survivors to have to come and be a voice mm-hmm. they don't owe that to anybody but when they do man is it ever powerful and i remember being so mad years ago because i love oprah I mean, I really love Oprah, but years ago she did a whole episode on men, male survivors of sexual abuse, and I was pretty pumped about it because I knew a number of male survivors who were awesome and doing well in life, and everything was great, and big advocates, and so I was ready to tune into this show thinking she's going to make a huge difference here, and it was horrible because she brought out men who were so early on in their journey, who were so broken, and, and it was just, it was such a missed opportunity in my eyes because I'm sitting there thinking, okay, who sitting at home watching this on TV is going to go, yeah, I want to be a part of that club, you know, Um, because without question, there's pain that people have to go through and and there's parts of it. But I don't know that that's where we want people to be striving toward. And there are wonderful examples of people, like many, multiple, tons of examples of people who... um, do very, very, very well. So it's just really frustrating because I think when people, we, we see it all the time when you see presenters from survivors who are thriving and it's like the lineup of people to talk to them after their presentations, to disclose to them, to tell them, because all of a sudden they're like, oh, like he's okay, she's okay. So maybe it's okay for me to, to, to acknowledge that this has happened to me and Kind of pushed to that place
0: to start down yeah. that path. Yeah, yeah, and I think I haven't seen the Oprah episode, but I'm assuming <laughs> a long time ago. I'm I, old. I, I'm, assume, <laughs> I'm assuming that maybe they were brought out too early in the process. That's it was exactly still what raw. I mean. It was
1: yeah. so they were so early on in their journey, and and. um, you know, my, I, I sure hope that uh, those men have recovered. Most of those men have recovered in whatever way they could. Um, but it was, it was, it was exactly that. It was just that it was so new. They probably had just recently started down this path. Um, they're pretty extreme situations, of course. Um, you know, and, um, it was just a bit sensational, sensationalized and it didn't have that power to really show what I think is far more likely, which is with resources and assistance, people
0: become very strong. Someone already through the partially healing journey is more of an effective interview than someone who's just...
1: Yeah, if that's what your goal is. If your goal is to really help and make a difference, Mm -hmm. let's show people what's on the other side.
0: Beautiful. Question four, what's a time in your life where you had to pivot because a plan just wasn't working out?
1: Well, I think I'm doing that a lot right now, Um, but I I wouldn't say nothing's working out. Um, Mm. Well... It seems a bit cheesy, but it's like I think even the role that I've taken on now, I think it's huge because, I mean, this what we're trying to push forward as we move along is a pretty significant pivot for everybody <laughs> in how we do business and um, challenging people's thinking and challenging my own. I think I've been in my job over at Snowflake now since for just over a year, and I think there's a constant evolution of um, thinking about what we need to do. And I think if we're going to be effective in how we respond to any of the issues that we deal with, Um, It needs to be almost a constant thing. I don't think there's a sudden pivot that needs to happen necessarily. Well, there is right, right. Currently, (laughs) okay, I'll correct myself, right? Currently, there's a pretty sudden pivot that needs to happen. But what I would say is if we're successful, when we're successful in getting a new um, organization going and a new way of doing business going, um, it will not be successful unless it's always pivoting, unless it's always learning and changing and adapting how we can do better. I think that's. I mean, it's 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 the only way to be successful is to constantly be evolving, and I think that's what that's what goes wrong with a lot of our systems is we just tend to do things the same because that's how we do things, and so it's challenging those perceptions within ourselves and within the systems that are there.
0: Yeah, it seems like when you're in this world, that is with currently almost in its infancy about how we understand Mm -hmm. trauma even how we understand the social implications of whatever Mm -hmm. happens you have to constantly be ahead of it Mm -hmm. otherwise you'll get left behind when Mm -hmm. things are when we're learning it as we go
1: well you know brings me back to the question you asked before about what would you do if money wasn't an issue or i remember the other (laughs) things were if all those things were an issue i was thinking about that the other day it's sort of like you don't want to put a mantra on the wall that kind of says you know could we be doing better for kids? If the answer is yes, why aren't we? Mm. If it's because the rules are structured in a certain way, can we change the rules? Mm. If we can't change the rules, then what can we do? But I think generally speaking, you can change rules. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of walking through that the whole time because I think most, if I—if you talk to anybody that works in this field, whether it's a police officer, a social worker, a doctor, a nurse, um, probably they could tell you what the gaps are from their perspective. So it's about giving people the opportunity to fill those gaps and change things.
0: I personally love the line of thinking of, You know, I've always questioned why. Why is that a rule? You know, why why does that have to? Why why do we do that? And it's got me in trouble a few times. But with everything that we have, be it you know federal laws, local laws, like any sort of situation Mm -hmm. at work, if you're like, well, why is it like this? Mm -hmm. A lot of times that might sort of rattle the cage a little bit, and you might get a little bit of crap for it, Mm -hmm. but. We have to constantly. Well, somebody
1: wrote it, so right. that means that it can be re- rewritten. And right? times change <laughs> yeah. too, right? And, like... and they wrote it at a time that they probably thought it was the best way to For go. Sure. Um, but the world's a really different place now, and we can also learn, uh, you know, how we're doing things. There's an organization in Montreal, a child advocacy center, and we're just learning from them about what they do in terms of therapeutic needs of kids. And a lot of places go, okay, you have a crime committed against you, you get six sessions. Well, why?
0: just arbitrarily right (laughs) well that's the
1: thing i mean most systems are set up that way right but they they've done a whole whole research study where they look at sort of typologies of kids and how they respond to abuse and some kids are really resilient and they don't need six sessions they need a whole maybe some other things they need some you know the parents need psychoeducational information and that sort of thing and then there's kids that experience trauma in this way and so this type of therapy and that duration makes most sense for them and but it's just it's thinking it's asking why so we should always ask why and to what end why are we doing that and to what end
0: two podcasts ago, I talked to Diane Rusin and she was talking about, you know, every single case is different. Mm-hmm. Every family is different. Mm-hmm. Every situation is different. So having a cookie cutter approach to every single person that comes through the door is never going to work. And, never. It, and it's a weird way that we set up our systems uh-huh. that, okay, well, this is what you do when X happens. Exactly. And, it can't really be and that's like exactly
1: that. what we're trying to change.
0: Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Question five, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given?
1: The best piece of advice would be to be, um, I don't know if it was advice or if it was sort of modeling, things that I've watched and learned from, and that's to invite as many people, many smart people who think differently than you to the table. So I think that's my best asset right now with something like the the thing that we're wanting to move forward with is... um, I've got lots of ideas. I'm really excited. But I've said to a lot of people already, I need smarter people than me to be a part of this because it's important. So, you know, just being able to be open to having as much help as you can and to inviting people in. And I think the exciting part for us right now with child abuse and with this particular issue is uh, there's really no need to beg people to help you. It's like, let's tell, I like to talk, thankfully. So I'll talk to as many people as I can about what we think we'd like to do and the right people are going to put up their hand to say look I really want to help with that and we need it we need lots and lots of help from different uh, folks who think differently in different backgrounds
0: I've I've said this before but one of my favorite ideas is if you're uh, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room.
1: Exactly. That is a really, really, really good point. And it's, yeah. so who are you and trying a scary to... scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, no. it's exciting too. Yeah. It's
0: anxiety-inducing uh, and exciting. Yeah. Well, who are some of the people that you want to bring to the table that haven't been there yet? Or has everyone pretty much come that you've needed to establish well, a link with?
1: Well, everybody that we can at this point. I think there's going to be a lot more sort of open invitation to community to be involved. Mm. Um, I, th- I think... Yeah, I'm being a little bit cryptic because we're not quite in a place yet where we're going to be able to open the floodgates to having everybody come in, but... I mean, we're in a huge point of transition in the organization where we're transitioning everything from our board of directors to be more of a community-based board uh, to sort of start setting ourselves up for the type of undertaking we're about to embark on. So um, there's room for just about everybody. And I think, you know, at some point in time, when we look at a new facility, a new, I hate that word actually, it <laughs> sounds very rigid, but a new environment to support children, um, we're going to need everybody. We're going to need, uh, you know, I bring it back to good old days of like a, an old-fashioned barn raising. Like we're going to be able to invite lots people at the table. And I think I'm optimistic um, that, you know, I'll have to come back on and talk more openly at that time or something. I'm optimistic, but there's literally nobody um, in our community that that really couldn't help other than a very narrow part of the population.
0: Well, and you're quite good at Getting people fired up about the cause, I gotta say. Like, as soon as I met you, I was like, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go to war for you. Whatever you need, let's do it.
1: Well, it's a pretty compelling cause. And I felt yeah. that way a little bit about the pitch because I listened to the other pitches and they were fantastic. Mm-hmm. And they're, um, they're, um, not only were their pitches fantastic, their causes are fantastic, but when you're talking about child abuse and you're talking about dogs, it felt a little bit unfair (laughs) (laughs) on that front. You know what I mean? But I mean, the rest of them, I mean, I I never anticipated the outcome that that Hmm. came because they're just so, so good. So... Uh, I hope everybody's listening to all those ones too and stepping up because there's no question that there's enough need in this community for everybody to get involved and it feels good to get involved. So
0: that's kind of what the foundation's mandate has been in the last few years is find your cause yeah. and support it. We yeah. don't care what it is. Yeah. There's so many out there. Yeah. Just dive in, yeah. help out. Yeah.
1: yeah. And you know, I'm hearing from lots of people. The one thing I will say is just, I'm, people are reaching out a lot actually. oh, There's a Netflix series out on um, the trials of Gabriel Hernandez, I think is his name, boy in the U.S. It's a terrible case. Mm -hmm. Don't watch it if you're going to be triggered because it's a very difficult case of a kid who has failed. Um, Not unlike some of the big cases we've heard of in our community. Um, But people are really wanting to reach out and say, you know, what can I do when I see that? And I think what I'm excited about too is I know people are motivated in that way. When they hear something bad that happens to kids or tragedy in our community, a preventable tragedy, they want in. And so I think what's really exciting about all of what we're going to be able to do in the future is being able to have a place for people to go with that and help. Because I think that helps heal communities too, is to feel like they can do something with the negative experiences they, they hear. And maybe that's part of what we talked about earlier. Maybe that's part of the wellness strategy for being in this space is you feel like you're really doing something. I think it can be really hard for you know police officers and social workers who are doing everything they can and seeing case after case and not feeling like they're getting the outcomes that they need. So we need to shift that so that everybody's feeling better about the great work they're doing
0: very well said uh, question six what advice would you give your 10 year old self if you could talk to her right now
1: <laughs> that's a really that's kind of a fun question mm-hmm. 10 is a fun age actually uh, how ten's old are your kids ge- well Mike my, my, oh, t- t- turning 18 years. and oh, 16 yeah, there you they're go. fun too they've been fun all the way along but 10's like 10 from what I remember is um, it's sort of this really awesome age where they're like totally themselves and not yet impacted by what everybody else thinks so after 40, you get that back a little bit. So it's kind of fun. So maybe between, I tell my 10 year old self, like, hold on to that because. I, I love being over 40 because over 40, you really stop caring what people think too. Um, unless they're the really smart people that you adore and you want to be just like them. So that's great. But um, but
0: generally you care yeah, less but, or you don't care about the, the inconsequential people. Yeah, and we take risks. That, like yeah. when you're
1: 10, you take risks. You do what you, and you're just your true self and you're having fun for the most part, mm-hmm. right? I mean, obviously we're talking about different stuff, but I think that's what it would be like. It's like what people think about you don't matter. Um, Take risks and try stuff. You know, fast pitch was something that was terrifying, I think, for all 12 people. I'm pretty sure everybody was terrified. But at the same time, you know everybody's rooting for you. Anybody in that room that's being judgy, you really don't care (laughs) what they think of you. I mean, you have to fight through that whole thing. Um, But that's the part that changes as you start to get older. All of a sudden, you start getting weighted down by other people's impressions and thoughts and feelings when – Yeah, 10's fun. So we should all try to be a bit more 10. So
0: the advice, yeah, the advice is just (laughs) stay, keep those aspects of yourself that makes a 10-year-old great. Well, you're on
1: the planet one time, right? So let's do whatever we think is the most fun and what we think we want to be better at and good at and take risks, yeah.
0: Last question, what do you want to be remembered for? Uh,
1: You know, it's not so much about what... I remembering me but I think I think we have the opportunity in front of us collectively and certainly I am I, excited to be a big part of that just to really change how we do things and I think we could do that in Manitoba for the rest of the country, because I even look right across and I see so many things that people are doing great and doing better than we are currently. Um, But I think we're in a position where we could take that to another level where people start looking to Manitoba, as they have, like in the child protection space, in in many, many ways. um, Manitoba's done some cool stuff. Um, There's other things not so great. But I think we've been leaders in some unique pieces of um, child protection and innovation in that space. So I think Hitting a little reset right now in terms of what we put forward is a pretty, it doesn't sound like much, but it's a pretty fundamental and awesome change because, um, you know, the trajectory of kids that don't get help the way they should, um, we start seeing them in all these other services that we have to offer in the community. And so I think think if we stay on the right path right now, I, I guess I'd like to be remembered as being part of that change.
0: Well, good luck on the cusp of this wave that hopefully is coming. It feels like it's coming. You can already feel the cultural and societal shift. So it's good to see that now we're going to start building systems that reflect that cultural shift. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, Christy, for talking to us. This is awesome. Yeah. Congratulations on being the fast pitch champion. (laughs) And uh, hopefully, we'll hear from you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you again to Christy Dickowitz from Snowflake Place, an unbelievably valuable conversation. And I think the work that she and her team is doing is so, so great. And I'm incredibly thankful to get to learn a little bit more about it. As Christy mentioned earlier, the Canadian Centre for Child Protection's website, if you need more information, is protectchildren.ca. Again, that's protectchildren.ca. Some great resources there if you want to learn a bit more or just uh, educate yourself on how to talk to kids and how to how to deal with a lot of these difficulties difficult situations that unfortunately are part of our reality. All music on the Because and Effect podcast is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can find more of his music at trentonburton.com. Special thank you to Sonner Promolo and Robert Zirk for assistance on the podcast and everyone at the Winnipeg Foundation for your support. The Cause and Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. You can follow them on social media by searching at WPGFDN on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and you can follow me at Nolan Bicknell on Twitter and Instagram as well. Thank you for listening. Um, this is going to be the last podcast in a while because of the coronavirus situation that's happening, so please make sure to take care of yourselves practice social distancing. Uh, Let's really make sure that we we get through this as strong and healthy as ever. And remember, it's your reaction to adversity, not adversity itself, that determines your life's story. Bye-bye.